listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number 83. Today, we're going to talk about Grease on the Skids with our very own Sarah Leonard. She'll be joining us later, but first, the news. So on our last episode, we interviewed Justin Melito of the Writers Guild of America East about the union drives at Gawker Media and at Salon. Um, at that time, the union was still waiting to hear of Salon, which is, of course, a progressive media outlet, which has many times published my labor reporting and Michelle's, I believe, right? Yes, yes. a little bit. Um, and used to employ f- former belabored co-host Josh Idelson. Um, Just oozing with labor. Oozing with labor. Um, whether they would voluntarily recognize the union as every editorial employee at Salon Salon had publicly declared support for it. Um, on August 1st, Salon did, in fact, agree to recognize the union, granting what we talk about as card check recognition to all the workers who signed up for representation. They are beginning the bargaining process immediately, a process that Gawker Media is still, as far as I know, in the middle of. And, of course, our organizer listeners and uh, unionized listeners will know that that's often the hard part of everything. Last week, also, the journalist at the Guardian's U.S. office, another progressive publication which has published by and Michelle's labor journalism, um, as well as the place where, of course, Edward Snowden's revelations were originally published in 2013, also voted to join a union. Um, the Guardian, of course, has a long history of being on the side of labor in the U.K., and its workers also unanimously voted to become members, this time of the News Media Guild, which is a local chapter of the News Guild within the Communications Workers of America. Um, The union has been recognized by The Guardian, and its staff actually um, praised their new U.S. editor for welcoming the effort. Um, Both CWA and the WGA East have said that they are in contact with other digital media workers about joining, so it will be pretty exciting to see where the next dominoes fall. We will, of course, keep you updated on that. If you are one of those workers and want to talk to us about it, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org, or, well, you may, may not want to tweet about it for reasons, but if you do, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored. So uh, the big news in Washington was Obama's new climate change plan, which calls for um, a reduction in carbon emissions um, as you, if you're um, following the environmental issues, you will probably see what Obama is projecting for emissions reductions and see that it is falling far short of the UN recommended goal and is also lagging behind uh, the goals set by other Europe, uh, by European countries. Um, but for America, where we are still ruled by many climate change deniers, I guess it's a start. And uh, in the process of this just transition, the big component is a reduction in the uh, reliance of the energy grid, uh, the electricity grid on coal-fired power plants. And so there are significant reductions, 32% emissions reductions from 2005 levels. Um, And this is uh, to be the most ambitious plan yet. Uh, to sort of wean the country off of uh, fossil fuels, namely for electricity. The uh, desire to cut coal is, of course, uh, raising a lot of alarm in coal country. Uh, 
which is to say central Appalachia and other parts of the heartland that rely heavily on coal mining and are heavily reliant on coal-fired power plants. Um, I have a piece up at The Nation talking about what labor groups are doing and what progressive labor initiatives are doing to try to uh, achieve what they call a just transition, which we've talked about before on Belabored. Um, with this clean power plan, many see it as a springboard to an opportunity to actually uh, change the nation's energy grid over to something that relies much more heavily on renewable sources like wind and solar. And of course, in order to do that in a fair way, they're going to bring the workers along with them, hopefully. So uh, you can read more about that on The Nation, uh, about different unions trying to see what they can do uh, to ensure that uh, the green tradition doesn't leave labor behind. When Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, almost exactly a year ago, last August 9th, AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka went to Ferguson and rather famously said, Our brother killed our sister's son, a reference to the fact that both Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden, and police officer Darren Wilson are union members. But police unions, as those who listen to our episode 68 with Joshua Freeman know, have a pretty fraught relationship to the labor movement, and now one union local has called for that relationship to end. The 13,000 teaching assistants and other student workers in the University of California system who make up United Auto Workers Local 2865 passed a resolution calling on the AFL-CIO to end its affiliation with the International Union of Police Associations. I spoke with Brandon Buchanan, a member of the Black Interests Coordinating Committee within the union, about why they put forward that statement. So the Black Interest Coordinating Committee, or BIC, is a subcommittee within the UAW 2865, and it was formed largely in response to a few different things. One Mm -hmm. was external, external incentive for organizing, right? We were seeing the Black Lives Matter movement start. We were seeing the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Garner. Um, and the non-indictment of police officers involved in those instances of of police murder and racist killings. And so the Black Interest Coordinated Committee was spurred to organize in part because of those instances. In addition, we formed in response to questions of racism and anti-blackness within our own union. And largely seeking to address how union spaces are largely white spaces. Mm -hmm. And to get our voices heard, we realized that we needed to come together to form a committee that specifically addressed the needs of black workers in the union. Otherwise, the, the union could do things like make statements about things like the killing of Eric Garner without input from black voices. And that had some potential areas where we found that it reflected the broader issues of anti-blackness in the union. So we formed as an organization, a sub-organization, to help call out our fellow union members and call them into an anti-racist union. The reason why we focused on this letter is because we wanted to continue the internal work that we're doing within our own union, but make it a part of the broader conversation in labor, Mm -hmm. that anti-blackness and racism are not limited to UAW 2865 
organizing spaces, but are critical questions of the labor movement more broadly. And what we were seeing was a number of police unions and associations coming out and criticizing black activists for addressing the needs of their communities and actively working to sort of cover up and dismiss issues of police brutality in their department. And so, you know, with the realization that police unions have an enormous amount of power and an enormous amount of say over how their narrative gets constructed and how then police are seen as as always the defenders of society and black people who are claiming that police brutality is happening to them are always seen as the liars or the people who are just trying to get off or the people who are trying to abuse the system. And they're able to make use of that narrative and that racism to completely avoid accountability within their organizations and accountability to the communities that they serve. That was Brandon Buchanan of the United Auto Workers Local 2865. Uh, In other news in the academic uh, educational labor front, the Fight for 15 has reached the early childhood care sector. Um, Early childhood educators and child care workers are pushing for the uh, $15 hourly base wage that many other low-wage sectors have been campaigning for over the past uh, couple of years. Um, Many of these teachers are among the lowest paid in the sector. Many of these child care workers are barely uh, uh, earning above the minimum wage right now, finding it really hard to make ends meet, even though many of them have college degrees and have all sorts of certifications, they're still paid barely enough to survive on. So the campaign launched this week by the Fight for 15 in collaboration with um, the Make It Work Coalition and other uh, labor-oriented groups lays out a multi-pronged proposal for creating, quote, high-quality, flexible care, more affordable and accessible for all families. So they're combining the interests of working parents who rely on daycare and pre-K to get by with the interests of workers who really need a living wage right now. Basically, uh, this was coupled with a House resolution that calls for guaranteed child care subsidies for middle and low income families to ensure that child care costs no more than 10% of household income and a wage floor for educators and caregivers of at least $15 an hour. Families would then have access to public preschool for all three and four-year-olds, and there'd be overall greater investment in programs like Head Start. So this is basically getting at both the family side and the worker side and seeing how the two can fit together. Generally speaking, the sector suffers massive turnover rates, as high as 30%. Um, The lack of competitive wages means there's a huge wage differential between what, say, a preschool teacher makes and what a kindergarten teacher or a high school teacher makes, and there's very low unionization in this sector. So there's a lot of organizing to do, and right now hopefully they can get both working families as well as um, other low-wage workers on board in this push for uh, services that many families simply cannot live without today.
our guest today was involved from the very beginning when the, this podcast was just a glimmer in our little eyes. Um, Sarah Leonard, who is now a senior editor at The Nation, is the, still a contributing editor here at Descent, and of course the founding executive producer of this year podcast. She is just back from her second reporting trip to Greece this year and is going to tell us about what's been going on there over the last few weeks. We are very happy to have Sarah here, although she is going to tell us about a very depressing subject. So, Sarah, easy question. Can you give us a brief overview of what's been going on in Greece for our listeners who are really not up on this? Sure. Well, to give you the short version of some very long and heavy events, Greece, uh, like much of Europe, has been in crisis since the 2008 financial crisis, after which the country of Greece went into a pretty massive quantity of debt and... In 2010, um, Greece accepted the first uh, sort of bailout deal, um, which was referred to as the first memorandum. And the memorandum imposed a lot of austerity on Greece, set pretty severe limits on social spending, and included oversight by European institutions, and as such was regarded as not only punitive on the population, which was really suffering already, but also a serious abrogation of democracy. This was followed by another memorandum in 2012, and in between by massive protests in Greece. When you think about the day-to-day effects of austerity, we're talking about, for example, big cuts in health care. It's very hard to go to a public hospital right now and to get the medicine you need. Uh, There are even food shortages and malnutrition. There's very, very high unemployment. Officially, it's 25% and 50% of youth, but practically speaking, um, higher than that. And so the major parties, which Greeks felt had gotten them into this mess, and that was really true, and both of those parties were very, very corrupt. We're talking about PASOK and New Democracy. They formed a coalition government, which was wildly unpopular, accepted the second memorandum, and then they called snap elections in 2015. And what that meant was Syriza, which had been a coalition of small left-wing parties, which had been sort of slowly coalescing throughout the crisis, was able to sweep to a really stunning electoral victory, representing all of the fears and unhappiness that Greeks had about austerity and hope that finally there is a party that, first of all, wasn't corrupt as hell, and second of all, actually had their interests at heart and would fight the European institutions instead of just lying down and taking it. So then, to bring us right up to the present, Syriza was elected at the end of January, And since then, they've gone through round after round of negotiations with the European institutions, which are commonly known collectively as the Troika. And they have tried to negotiate their way out of this horrible austerity debt trap. So basically, um, the institutions will say, well, we'll help you pay your creditors, But um, if you want our help, you're going to have to cut social spending even more. Um, This, of course, makes the economy contract and makes it even harder to make their payments. But if Greece says no, then the institutions essentially cut off liquidity and Greek banks fail. So normally 
a country would work their way out of this by adjusting their fiscal policy, but Greece can't do that because they're inside of the euro. So they're in this trap, and they're negotiating and negotiating, and you probably saw Varoufakis in the news, their finance minister until recently, um, sort of throwing bombs and insulting European bureaucrats. And essentially, they had no luck. And so just a couple weeks ago, they had a big referendum, and they asked the Greek people to vote ohi or no in order to strengthen Syriza's negotiating hand and say to the Europeans, you need to really come to the table because we have a mandate not to take these austerity terms. And who knows what will happen if you try to force us to take those austerity terms. And people overwhelmingly voted no, about 60%, which was high given the potential risk. Uh, Cyprus went back to negotiate and in an all-night session ended up accepting the terms that were really no better than he had been offered before the referendum. And so he went back and now has to impose, as a leftist, a new regime of austerity, which he says is biding time, on a country that's already suffering horribly from austerity. And so people are disappointed, disillusioned, but Cyprus still has a high approval rating, as does Syriza, and we can talk about that. So that's my uh, capsule history of the entire Greek crisis. Wow. Very well done. Yes. (laughs) You just took us through the entire past year. Chaos. I know, it's an ugly scene. Yeah. So you were in Greece when Syriza was elected, um, and then just returned on basically on July 28th, I can imagine, of course, that things were very different, but sort of what had changed in that period of time for Greek people? I imagine it sort of went up and then back down again, but... Well, the interesting thing is there have been shifts in attitude, but very few material shifts. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the interesting things was when Syriza was elected, I kept asking people, oh, is this going to be like Obama, where people think he's going to solve all these problems, and then they get really disillusioned and sad, and there's like historic turnout, and then there's just historic disillusionment, and whatever. And they they basically laughed at me. They're like, we don't think Syriza is going to fix all our problems. They definitely can't. But if they do one-tenth of what they say they're going to do, we'll be happy. And underlying that was just the fact that everybody in Greece mentions the deep state, which is just, if you want a government job, you have to know somebody. Um, If you want to get your business off the ground, you have to know somebody. There are just deep-seated networks of corruption. Um, And these stretch back, you know, practically till back to 81, when a truly modern government took over. And so... The development of the Greek welfare state, which is a good thing, um, has happened alongside of this sort of clientelism, which makes it very hard for anything to get done um, and makes the government extremely unresponsive to people. Uh, So people were just really sick of it. And they were so thrilled with this young party led by a young leader, Tsipras, who was really evidently not corrupt, not in the pocket of the Greek oligarchs, the shipping people, the media people. Uh, So people were pretty psyched about him, actually, and people still have a lot of faith in him. So you'll be like, well, he went and made this deal. And I would say, you know, do you feel that your Ohi was represented? And they'd say, look, like, it's a bad deal. I'm disappointed. But what could he do? And they'll say, you know, at least he's not corrupt. 
at least, you know, we really believe that they're trying. People really, really feel this way. And a lot of people will say that they voted no to to support the government, to give the government a stronger hand. They do feel like the government is trying to represent them. That being said, unemployment has not gone down. And things that Syriza did right away for just humanitarian reasons, um, like uh, there was some extension of unemployment benefits, the Troika is going to force them to undo. So any legislation passed after their election, uh, which does not conform to EU expectations for austerity, are going to have to be repealed as a condition for getting the money. So on a material basis, people are still screwed, and it's not looking good. In fact, one uh, clinic I visited that's all volunteers, including volunteer doctors, a solidarity clinic, and it treats people for free who don't have medical care, etc., said for the first time they're seeing more Greeks than migrants coming to them because so many Greeks are out of work, have no health care, don't have social security, don't have pensions, and just have nothing left. Uh, So people are edgy. I would say. So the thing on the pensioners, how is the situation with with that? Because I think that's one of the key things that a lot of the workforce that is not currently employed is basically relying on at this point. Right. That's a good question. Um, I I can't speak to all of the details of where the pension system stands right now, but a big problem is that um, when people are unemployed, they don't get pensions. So if they're if they're unemployed for a certain period of time, they're not eligible for any pension. Yeah. And so as unemployment goes up, you know, the, there are fewer and fewer people with pensions, and there are more and more families that are reliant on, the, you know, the one person who, that does have a pension. Particularly, I spent some time in the shipping zones, and because shipping has really declined as an industry in general, and part of the Troika's sort of demands have been privatization of the port, employment there has absolutely plummeted. And I think it's in Parama that they hit 95% unemployment. And so people there are heavily reliant on often grandparents. And then as the pension system suffers, those families suffer too. And so this is just like a particularly vicious cycle. Pensioners actually voted far more than any other group for yes in the referendum, which was essentially yes, accept Europe's terms, because they're afraid of losing the one thing that they have. So from over on this side of the Atlantic, it looked like there had been sort of a rift opening up within the Syriza leadership and some kind of um, fracturing. Uh, I think the way the media painted it, it was like sort of a Yanis Varoufakis on this side and then Tsipras was sort of hewing more to the center or whatever, taking various positions with respect to the Troika's demands. So how did you feel about whether or not there was a divided party and and how are they coping with that? Yeah, that's complicated. The thing to remember first is that Syriza is itself a coalition of many left parties, several. And the only reason that they are one party is that... um, in 2012, I believe, the government passed a law saying that um, if you were a coalition, you couldn't run for executive office, maybe, 
I forgot what the exact terms were, but if you were, but if you formed a party, then you could. So basically to take the government, they had to become a party. So they had to technically dissolve themselves as parties, but they're still parties. Um, so this is an amazing balancing act, honestly, that Syriza has pulled off. If you think about the left and the states all trying to get together and form one party, just like think about the meetings, you know? Anyway, so there is a divide. The real divide is not between Tsipras and Varoufakis. Varoufakis is um, a Keynesian economist. Many would consider him on the right end of Syriza, um, although that's really sort of an arbitrary distinction at this point, since he was a very forceful negotiator. So he is no longer finance minister. He's a member of parliament now. He is not, at this time, a, a really powerful either. figure within the party, although he's a powerful voice. Um, many people read him, pay attention to him. I think he has half a million Twitter followers. Uh, Twitter listens to Varoufakis. Um, but but he's been a very, very important voice. Um, the real division at this point is between Tsipras and his circle. Um, and at that po- this point, you could sort of define it as people who support him making the deal he made. And the left platform and other people who don't think he should have made the deal. The left platform, describing it as the left of Syriza is a little complicated. They're really sort of old school in a way. Um, And one of the criticisms of them is that they're not connected to the social movements, that they don't really have a big social backing, and that most of the members are older they don't have the sort of vitality that Tsipras brought to the party. That would be the criticism of the left platform. And the two positions basically go like this. Tsipras says, I cut this deal because we could not have handled the catastrophe that would have been, you know, the shutting down of the Greek banking system, Grexit, and the the sort of economic and geopolitical chaos that would have ensued had we broken with the Eurozone. And what the uh, left platform says is, of course, this will be painful, but if they keep imposing austerity on us and the economy just goes into a death spiral, we're basically a debt colony. We can't control our own fiscal policy. Things will get worse and worse. There's no solution the way, you know, in your world. The Germans aren't cutting us a deal now. They never will. So we need to Grexit. We need Greece to exit the Eurozone. The common criticism of the left platform position is just that they have no plan for how to do that without total chaos. And that criticism is not without merit. I would say there is no existing plan for what the government would do, and there's very limited capacity. It is one of the effects of corruption over time is that Greece actually has a very thin civil service because people are not trained as professionals and experts and given a positions according to that. Historically, there was a lot of clientelism, and it really hollowed out the sort of basic civil service nature of the government. And it's it would be very hard to manage the crisis that Grexit would be. So people are very afraid of that. People want to see a plan. At the same time, one of the reasons there's no plan is that Tsipras asked Varoufakis to focus on negotiating and not on planning for a Grexit. So you have a bit of a impossible situation. And, you know, I I sort of talked to different people about this, and people have a similar analysis of what went wrong and, you know, the ways in which Greece is screwed, but they have sort of two different answers. You know, I when I was in Piraeus, the, the port area, 
Um, I talked to a union ship repair metal worker, uh, and he is a senior, pretty senior in his union. Um, he works for the union, um, and he represents the left platform within his union. He's a Syriza guy. And he was like, look, like, as Syriza, we said we're going to do certain things. We're, we said no supervision of our domestic policy by the Troika. We said no more austerity. We said 300,000 jobs. We haven't done those things. We did something else. And the party needs to split because we're not going to go to parliament and vote for things that we ran against. That's crazy. Um, so he says, yes, the left platform has to split. Most members of the left platform who are actually elected officials have been much more hesitant to say, yes, we'll split, because no one wants to see the government fall apart, right? But they've made very clear that they don't like sitting in parliament and voting for austerity measures that they ran on the basis of overturning because the Troika requires them to pass austerity measures in order to get the bailout. It's insulting and it's completely ineffective economics and it's undemocratic. And so as a result, many of them did not vote for the measures that Cyprus needed them to vote for to uh, to get the bailout money. They, they either uh, marked themselves as present but didn't vote or they a couple of them voted against it. They calculated it more or less so that the thing would still go through because otherwise the government would have fallen apart. So there will be a party Congress in September um, where, in theory, they're going to sort this stuff out, and we shall see. Uh, the left platform is furious about this because they want a Congress now yeah. and split or don't split, but sort it out. Um, they say September is too late. Unfortunately, as I learned in Greece, absolutely nothing happens in August. Um <laughs> Uh, it turns out that trying to speak with people in August is just like a way to get messages back that say I'm in the islands, um, which is what I would be doing. This was the hottest week in Athens. It's unbelievable. So the party may split at that time. One thing that might happen is Verifakis, Verifakis, pardon, Cyprus, in the next set of elections, which will likely be in the fall, um, because he needs a popular mandate for his sort of shift in direction, could exclude left platform members or other people who are not following his line from the Syriza ticket. So he could sort of politically maneuver to exclude them from the party without like formally having a break in the party. Nobody knows if that will happen. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about what the party will do. Nobody knows. People think maybe the left platform could work with Antarcia, which is another left group that never joined the Syriza coalition, which has a much younger base. But it's it's extremely hard to say. Nobody knows. Yeah. So ultimately, um, when it was crunch time uh, and Cyprus was sort of in the throes of the sort of last negotiating session with the Troika, it sounded like what leverage the no referendum might have given him. He ended up, I mean, from just observing from the outside, it looked like he did not... He ended up hewing pretty close to the terms that the Troika was demanding, um, which I guess one could read as a capitulation without knowing actually what went on in that room. Um, what is your sense of how far, if at all, Cyprus caved and, and uh, why? And it, would it have made a difference? If I mean, the thing they came out with was a promise to consider debt relief in the future which is basically meaningless. And 
When people say Tsipras caved, I think that doesn't quite capture what was going on. There are a few things that could have happened, but the thing to understand is Syriza had no leverage. They had none. So when they went in there, and you could argue about whether they would have had more leverage if they had clearly prepared a plan for exiting the Eurozone, but they didn't. And we can talk about that. There are reasons for that. But that being said, they had absolutely no leverage. The Troika could shut down their banks and cause a complete meltdown of the economy. What could Greece do? Nothing. Greece could do that to themselves, but Greece can't cause suffering within the Eurozone except by doing something that would, at least in the short term, hurt them more. And not only that, um, does not currently appear to be a desire of the Greek people who elected them, who um, pretty clearly in polls have said, we don't like austerity, but we don't want to leave the Eurozone. So Tsipras basically went in there and, you know, I mean, who knows what exactly happened, but said, look, like, people in my country don't want this. Like, democratically, like, we should think about the fact that everyone in this country has said no and what it means then for the Troika to say yes. So he went in, he said, you know, this undoubtedly he said something like this is my country's position this is my position we all know these economics don't work we need debt relief etc and it's hard to know what the representatives of the various institutions said what merkel said but functionally they said that's nice fuck you um and so to say that cyprus caved is to say that he you know, didn't then walk out and let them turn off the Greek banks, um, which he has called blackmail, which I think is correct. Now, you can say he should have done that anyway, that sort of going down this very difficult path is better than caving into these insane demands by the Troika. But if you say that, then you have to understand what that means, you have to understand that there's there would be no currency in Greece. Like, you know, <laughs> there would be no money. So the party that is meant to administer social programs would not be able to do any of the things that it wanted to do then either. Now, all of this is a pretty good argument for the fact that when Syriza came into power, they should have immediately, if not well before they came into power, been preparing a Grexit plan get out of the Eurozone. In a way, they counted on um, the institution sort of seeing economic reason. You know, this wasn't about economics in that way. This wasn't about Germany, like, really wanting Greece to get better, if only Greece would be more disciplined. Um, If it were, they would, you know, be committed to programs that invested both in... um, creating jobs in Greece and in modernizing things like tax collection, which Greece has always said needs to be done. Or at the very least help them alleviate some of their debt instead of just like... Yeah, they would cut the debt for sure. Because right now, something most people don't understand is the money that's gone to Greece, almost all of it goes to service debts and interest to German banks. Um, And 
So none of it is being invested back in the economy, which is why the economy is shrinking and why it's impossible to create jobs. The Greek people have not absorbed any of the money that is going to Greece. It's basically just a giant shell company right now. It is. Functionally, um, you know, before the crash, northern European banks really over-leveraged, and they lent Greece way too much money, and they lent everybody way too much money. And so when Greece looked like it was maybe going to default... These other countries essentially took over the debt and bailed out Greece in order to bail out their own banks so their banks wouldn't fail. And ever since, it's been this horrible process of just um, lending money to Greece to pay back their own banks. This is a process of extraction from Greece to pay their own banks. And so none of this money is invested into Greece, which just causes this horrible spiral. You mentioned a little bit about the um, metal workers that you spoke with, but yeah, we're a labor podcast, I assume. Our our (laughs) listeners want to know a little bit more about the role of the Greek unions, sort of what's been going on since there was like some fear that there would be strikes after the deal. I don't think that actually materialized, but... Yeah, there was talk of a general strike. That did not materialize. Greece, if I'm right about this, I think has about... 25% union density, um, stronger in the public sector. And unions are responsible for administrating, to some degree, it's complicated, but, but social security, basically. The problem, of course, is with shrinking employment and with the privatization of things like the ports, which are typically union strongholds, uh, unions have gotten weaker, uh, much weaker. And, uh, the, the real force behind Syriza, if you had to sort of parse their backing, emerges from the social movements, emerges from the anti-globalization movement that coalesced, you know, in the early 2000s, students, for sure. Um, And basically anyone involved in these big sweeping anti-memorandum protests since 2010. So, those have felt in society like the sort of vital forces. And of course, people who are members of unions overwhelmingly voted for Syriza. You know, they're they're of the left. And some of those people were people who had previously voted for K- the KKE, for example, which is the rather hidebound and now somewhat small communist party, um, which has uh, strength in certain unions, um, including um, some of the shipping unions. But most union people at this point vote vote Syriza. I mean, one notable thing is a labor union cannot put pressure on the European Union. This is one of the ways in which administrating domestic policy at a European level is profoundly anti-democratic. What the hell is a union going to do to put pressure on the IMF? Or the ECB. This is they why can. we need massive international yeah. solidarity. Let's get working on it, um, listeners. <laughs> and, of course, they can destroy the union by privatizing the ports, let's say, and exactly. selling off parts and in of fact, public coffers. Part of the, the Troika's mandates have included lowering the minimum wage and anti-union policies. They have mandated the deregulation of certain industries. Mm-hmm. Because that definitely is going to make the economy better. Yes, yes, that's definitely going to improve the economy. It's not ideological at all what's happening here. No, no. I think they got rid of math. Um, all math. Basically most most yeah. employment protections. Yeah, and you know, the countries that have actually been treated better by the troika are the ones that have passed aggressively anti-union measures. So Italy has gotten 
somewhat better deals out of the Trika. This this is partly just a function of Renzi rolling back longstanding union protections, things that have been protections for decades. Um, in Italy, um, you know, it's much more easy to get fired in Italy now than it was 20 years ago. Um, and Renzi has been rewarded for this. So sort of on the flip side, the Golden Dawn is still a thing. What is going on? Is there a danger that they sort of pick up some momentum out of this as the, you know, the anti-austerity, sort of Eurosceptic, terrifying fascist right? Yeah, that's definitely a concern. Um, so Golden Dawn is the Nazi party, um, which, uh, you know, Greeks are always very quick to tell you, not neo-Nazi, Nazi. They're the Nazi party of Greece. Yeah, they're the real um, thing. They're yes. the real thing. Um, and they are. They're terrifying. Um, they're involved in organized crime. They've committed murders. Um, they um, most famously killed in a popular anti-fascist rapper. And right now, um, there are a series of trials going on prosecuting Golden Dawn members for their involvement in these crimes. So this has the advantage that Golden Dawn has been a little bit more on its back because their members are being prosecuted um, and they've been keeping a much lower profile. It's worth remembering that in the same election that brought Syriza to power, uh, Golden Dawn came in third in Parliament. And so they came in third with... which I think meant about, I'm trying to remember the number exactly, but it was it was under 10%. Yeah. And so people say now that they are afraid of Golden Dawn gaining popularity if Syriza fails because people will have no other party to turn to that they don't already regard as totally corrupt. But nobody thinks that Golden Dawn is going to get over like 10% in a parliamentary election. And right now they're looking a little weaker because of the prosecutions. And because, you know, people, even though Syriza has honestly yet to deliver, people do believe that they're in good faith. People don't feel screwed by Syriza, which is like a hard thing to communicate from the outside. Yeah. Uh, But they don't. So it is scary and it is a risk and something that Germany or, you know, German (laughs) elites should be thinking about is the fact that, German policy within the European Union, um, because they're the most powerful creditor nation, has functioned to create a Nazi party in Greece. And that's something that they need to think about and that Merkel, Schauble, they need to take responsibility for it because that is a reality for people in Greece. A few years ago, before Syriza came to power, Golden Dawn had a much freer hand and there were daily attacks on immigrants. It was terrifying to be an immigrant in Athens because Golden Dawn would come and beat you up or kill you. And that is a function of this sort of poverty and lawlessness that's bred by austerity. I've thought that there had been an effort to actually outlaw the party itself. Yeah, so part of the prosecution is attempting to get the judge to determine them an illegal party. So to consider them essentially organized crime. When Syriza came in, it was sort of seen as the beginning of a wave, perhaps, of these left anti-austerity parties. Is this feeling sort of still exist? What impact did this deal have on other parties in, like, Podemos in Spain or Sinn Féin in Ireland, which is sort of a different beast, but still was sort of riding that same momentum? Yeah. Syriza has a very strong relationship with sort of its 
sister parties throughout Europe, which would be, you know, the left bloc in Portugal, uh, Podemos in Spain, Sinn Féin, De Linca in Germany. And I wish I could give you a more inspiring or clearer answer, but it it's not it's not really clear, I would say, what the effect has been, except that when Syriza, for example, looked like it was getting crushed by the Troika, Pablo Iglesias, who is at the head of Podemos in Spain, uh, you know, tweeted his support. Clearly there is, you know, this sense of solidarity. But at the same time in his own country, he would campaign saying essentially you know, of course we're in solidarity with Syriza, but their situation is very different from our situation. And what he's essentially trying to do is persuade people that by electing Podemos, they're not going to end up in that kind of crazy situation, right? It's to no left party's benefit for people to think that they're going to be the next Greece. Yeah, yeah, be the next Greece. People are terrified of it. And so we'll see. But either way, one of the hopes that people had was, oh, we'll see the rise of all of these left parties. They'll come to power. They'll enter the halls of the European Union. And there will be a shift in the balance of power in the Eurozone. And everybody will be better off somehow. But if you break that down, there's no concrete way, honestly, in which I think in the short term anyway, that is true. If Tsipras did anything useful in these negotiations... It was revealing how brutal the Troika was prepared to be, how little it cared about the actual economics of member countries. And you'll remember at the beginning of negotiations, people tend to think about it um, and write about it. They would say, you know, basically Germany is kind of the grown-ups. You know, they're trying to instill a little discipline. Um, They've been very fiscally serious. And then you have, you know, the childish, profligate, lazy Greeks who don't know how to run their country, etc. Now what we've seen towards the end of the negotiations is widespread distaste for Schauble, the finance minister of Germany, who's been at the head of sort of the worst of, of the negotiations. Criticism for Germany, you know, more people saying, you know, you get this from Krugman, Stiglitz, other very mainstream economists saying, you know, this policy doesn't work. Why are you imposing it? The Financial Times thinks it's crazy. And so in a way, these negotiations, even if failed, have revealed something and pushed a narrative into the mainstream that was not there before. And maybe this will help the other left parties. That's a hope. Seems like every left party is hoping to just push the edges a little bit more and then maybe you know, yeah, hope yeah. that the next one will pick up where they left off. I because they're, they're you know called the periphery, um, somewhat derisively, because they don't have power in this in this union. And so I really do think that something the left needs to be thinking about is what role, if any, the Eurozone has in a democratic Europe. And I spoke with the one of the the term is alternate labor minister in the Syriza government, Rania Antonopoulos, whose mandate is to reduce unemployment. And I asked her if she thought the Eurozone was a failed project. And she said, yes, of course, look at this, (laughs) you know. And so that really big question, that sort of meta question of why this monetary union exists, who it serves, and whether it has any useful future beyond the imposition of German economic preferences on the continent, that is an open question now. And I think one that's much more on the table than it was 
five, ten years ago. Yeah. In response to austerity, there's been a groundswell of sort of grassroots solidarity activity. Um, can you give some examples or do any illustrations stick out to you of ordinary people trying to cope however they can, taking control of their own lives and their own situations through whatever means possible? Yeah, that's a great question. Greece has been really, really impressive in this aspect, actually. There are a few initiatives uh, I could talk about. The biggest one is the solidarity networks. So people call them the solidarity structures. And what this is, is basically a, a sort of loose network of medical clinics, uh, uh, food banks, uh, like co-op coffee houses, farms, uh, people who transport things. And the idea is to supply people with what they need in a solidaristic fashion instead of a charitable fashion. So the clinics, for example, I visited a clinic in uh, Piraeus, which serves these sort of pretty working class and now increasingly poor uh, areas near the port. And a lot of people have no medical care. And in fact, I was told that in this district of 140,000 people, which is the sort of larger district around Piraeus, there is about 140,000 people. There was one public dentist. You know, if you had money, you can, of course, go see a private doctor of any kind you want. One public dentist. And so... The Solidarity Clinic, what it does is doctors, dentists, other medical professionals volunteer. Uh, They have a schedule. They essentially sign up for slots. And there are volunteers from the community who basically work as administrators. And they showed me their pharmacy. They collect medicine. Um, For example, if a pharmacy has a patient who orders in a prescription and then it, it gets changed or they, you know, decide they don't need it or whatever, they'll donate that to the Solidarity Clinic. I visited one in Athens where they said most of their medicine was from people who had died and their families would then donate their leftover medication to the clinic. And so doctors, you know, these are, of course, just like normal doctors, but volunteering in this clinic will write prescriptions and they can be filled at this pharmacy, which is open, I think, a couple times for a few hours at a time because the pharmacist is volunteering, of course. And so these are places where people can go in their communities, which are created by people in their communities and get the kind of help that they need. The problem, of course, you know, the beautiful side is people feel like they're all sort of contributing and they're in this boat together and the feeling of solidarity and mutual support is amazing and when you ask people why they're doing this someone said to me that she's like well uh you can do it or you cannot do it meaning like you know we can all go down this is happening to all of us um and people feel a pretty extraordinary obligation to help And so that's sort of inspiring. The problem, of course, is these things serve a tiny portion of the people who need service. This is why you need public hospitals. And when you ask people, and, you know, so they would show me things, they'd be like, well, this is an ultrasound machine that was donated um, by a retired doctor in Germany who heard about us. And so he sent us this ultrasound machine, which we really need, but we only have the part, you know, it has sort of extension. We only have the part that goes outside the body, right? So we can sort of sort of do that part of the examination. But the part that's meant to go inside the body, um, we don't 
have the attachment for. We just don't have that part of the machine. So, you know, they're like, they're really scrapping it. And actually, when I got there, they were sort of upset because their donated refrigerator had broken down, which meant they had to throw out the insulin that was in it. And so this is how people are sort of getting by. They told me about one woman who had had a bypass surgery, and she's a mother. She was homeless at the time. And there was heart medicine that she was supposed to take every single day. And for six months, because she had no money and no pension, uh, she didn't take it at all. She never had the medicine. Um, And then she came to the Solidarity Clinic, and in the last six months, they had managed to get it for her by reaching out to all their networks three times. This medicine she's supposed to take every day, and she has a child. So if you ask the people in these clinics, you know... um, do you think the state should take over what you're doing? They're like, yes, please. (laughs) You know, they believe in this sort of solidarity and they consider it political. Um, But at the same time, it's, it's, it's impossible to fulfill the entire needs of a society this way, at least in the short term. Are they not actually using currency for any of these transactions at all? Kind of a barter system or basically. Yeah. I mean, it is possible to donate some money to them and they'll use it to buy supplies Mm -hmm. But no one's getting paid any money, and no one exchanges any money for services. And these are pretty widespread and cover a range of different things. I mean, they're they're extremely impressive. But what everyone will say is, you know, we never thought we would be here. This is a modern country. Yeah. 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 Interesting experience in post-Euro economy. Yeah. 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 One's, it's, it's like Brexit by default. <laughs> kind of, yeah. The I mean, I did ask, I was like, do you think that these sorts of structures could expand to cushion a possible Grexit. So when you go through this period, you know, and I, I asked this woman in Piraeus, I was like, what do you think of changing currencies? She's like, well, we don't use any currency, so we'd be kind of fine. <laughs> the problem with that, of course, is that they do cover a tiny amount of the population. And no, they could not really cushion a Grexit. So that sort of brings us to our last question, which is, right, I I think a lot of our listeners probably followed this very intensely and had a lot of feelings about it and wanted to be able to sort of be in solidarity. And other than sort of turning up at a protest, holding up a sign that said, no, there's not a real lot we know how to do. So is there, do you have a better idea of what we can do to help having come back from there? Yeah. So... I actually would say that donating money to solidarity clinics is a great way to go. They'll use it to buy supplies. And you can find, um, maybe we could put a link to the clinic that I talked about. And there's also a coordinating institution called Solidarity for All, um, which also will accept money to um, essentially serve administrative functions amongst the clinics. And also right now they're doing a lot of work with refugees. So it will go towards that. Yeah, so that's actually a good thing to do because it has, um, it goes to really self-determining institutions. And so you are both doing something concrete and something that builds political capacity in a way because it helps people to be self-sufficient. Beyond that, I do think it's very important for people to try to educate other people on what's actually happening. Uh, because there's a huge amount of misinformation about what's happening in Greece. And so talking to other people about it is just actually extremely important. Yeah. Are there um, sort of diasporic networks here in the United States? Yes. There's a group called AKNY, 
in uh, New York, which is the New York Greek Solidarity Group. Um, and they have members from uh, multiple parts of the left. Um, and some people are um, were born in Greece and immigrated here, and some people are have never lived in Greece. Some people in the group speak Greek and some don't, but they do solidarity work, and so they have a website which we could also post, mm-hmm. um, and they're a great resource for figuring out how to help. Yeah, is there are there any sort of political demands we can make? Like I know if we're getting into hellish election season, you know, sort of Bernie Sanders sent a, a strongly worded letter, mm-hmm. but like where can the U.S., which has an enormous amount of political weight, sort of bring that to bear in this situation? Well, it, it's hard to say because it's very indirect, which reflects the fundamentally anti-democratic nature of these institutions. Right. However, the clearest representative of American influence in these negotiations is the IMF. And the IMF has been the only institution, sort of ironically, given the IMF's history, right. calling for cutting Greece's debt. And you know, most people regard this as a function of them having learned some hard lessons over the years by destroying several economies. <laughs> destroying a um, lot of countries. And now they're like, oh, maybe, maybe we should try this let's, debt relief let's thing. Let's try something else. Yeah. yeah. So they're sort of trying to redeem their reputation. But they're seen as a vector of American influence, um, which has been more moderate on these questions than that of Germany, for example. So, you know, you could say indirectly, if American people make it well known that they think that what's happening to Greece is a travesty, maybe that would have some effect. But practically speaking, I think the thing that you can do is support Greeks who are in the struggle. I mean, it's really extremely difficult to influence policy that is being exercised on this level, which is just a fundamental problem with how it's structured. And that was Sarah Leonard. She's senior editor at The Nation, and we will have links to her reporting from the ground in Greece up on the website, Belabored. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, where we bring you our picks for things we read and liked and wish we had written, but alas, did not. So my pick for the week is by one Molly Smith. It appears in the Guardian newspaper, and it is actually, I believe, written by someone uh, using a pen name, Molly Smith, and it's called, In This Prostitution Debate, Listen to Sex Workers, Not Hollywood Stars. And despite the uh, salacious-sounding title, it's actually um, about a policy debate, uh, namely Amnesty International, one of the world's uh, leading human rights groups, uh, circulated a draft policy regarding the uh, criminalization or decriminalization of sex work. And uh, this is still a very fraught issue in the human rights community. And it kind of exploded uh, once a sort of, a, you know, some prominent uh, feminists and Hollywood stars uh, got a hold of it and decided to take a public stance attacking Amnesty. Basically, Amnesty opposes the criminalization of sex work and opposes the so-called Swedish model, which is basically um, a law enforcement framework uh, uh, with respect to sex work that tries to uh, criminalize it and 
marginalized sex work um, by targeting the clients of sex workers. Research shows, and Amnesty picked up on this, that it often uh, exacerbates stigma, um, leaves sex workers more vulnerable to economic exploitation um, and even violence at the hands of uh, people who target them, particularly because they are legally vulnerable and and knows that um, you know they they can be. Um, you know, abused uh, with very little recourse. And uh, that is the situation that many sex workers face um, under this supposedly more humane policy uh, called the Swedish model that uh, is supposed to be targeting uh, not these sex workers, but the clients. In reality, um, ultimately, the sex workers are the ones who are harmed and uh, they are the ones who are disempowered in this situation. So, um, you know, as an alternative to that, Amnesty has advocated harm reduction, um, evidence-based, um, you know, humane practices that end the criminalization of sex work and tries to protect them from abuse whenever possible. So um, this did not please the Hollywood celebrities who accused Amnesty of, quote, not listening, saying that if Amnesty isn't listening to these Hollywood celebrities, then, quote, who are they listening to? Well, um, Molly Smith replies, the idea that Amnesty might prioritize the voices of sex workers in a conversation about sex work was apparently incomprehensible. Even The Guardian found nothing amiss in running a story about this and not quoting anyone who currently sells sex. If this criminalization is so beneficial for us, it's hard to imagine why the organizations campaigning for it are unable to find and quote even one sex worker in the world in support of it. It is essential to listen to sex workers all over the world in order to draft laws to help keep us safe. And, um, you know, generally speaking, if you want to actually really help sex workers and protect them from harm, you need to start listening to what they have to say. So I have mostly been under a rock of reading books and writing my own, so I literally spent a little bit of time panicking yesterday because I hadn't read that much journalism. Um, And then I saw this piece from Alana Massey, who has written many things before that made me go arg, but none of them were about labor and work, and this one is. Um, It is at Pacific Standard, and it's called How Men's Emotions Are Preventing Gender Equality at Work. And of course, she had me at the title, Um, mostly because women are constantly told that our feelings are the biggest holdup to getting fair treatment. If we could just put our feelings aside and lean in or take criticism or something else. I hear it also has to do with vocal fry and saying just, but I honestly can't keep up. Then centuries of patriarchy and structures that segregate women into particular fields and particular jobs will just all magically fade away. So I love that Alana takes the frame of feelings and turns it around on the men for once. She is referencing a few recent studies that show that it is, in fact, the sexism, conscious or unconscious, of men that holds women back in the workplace, which, she rightly turns out, is usually framed as if women got lost somewhere and stumbled into the workplace, which is, of course, the terrain of men. One of these studies found that men often feel threatened by having women in a position of power over them. It ran a simulation of a salary negotiation in which men demanded more money when they were negotiating with a woman and tested the men's retention of words flashed on a screen. Men were more likely to see words like risk and fear if they were bargaining with a woman. This, of course, could have interesting consequences for labor collective bargaining, too. A second experiment asked participants to divvy up a $10,000 bonus. Men gave more of that money, surprisingly, to other men and kept more of it away from female managers. Adding a layer to this, when a female manager was described as ambitious and powerful, 
she was perceived as less ambitious than a woman manager who is described as administrative and good at you know managing tasks and they gave the administrative manager more share of that bonus than of course the ambitious and powerful one Another study found that disagreements between two women at work were considered more of a problem than disagreements between men. Massey writes, again, these assumptions are often predicated on the idea that the workplace is foreign to women, who obviously can't handle their emotions and will grow jealous of their female colleagues. A look at the data, however, suggests that it is men's fear-based emotions that disrupt the workplace more than women's envy-based ones. She notes that the men who need to hear about studies like these the most are, unfortunately, often the ones least likely to learn from them. Denial runs deep. And she has joked on Twitter that in the day or so since the article was published, her mentions have filled up with exactly the kind of comments she predicted in the piece. Men arguing that they've never seen a thing, such a thing personally, so the women, with all of our messy feelings, must be making it up. She concludes, men must come to terms with the fact that they feel professionally threatened by women, not just so workplaces are less hostile to women, but because it seems like an awful lot of work to feel endangered all the time. That concludes episode 83 of Belabored. As usual, if you are a uh, Greek citizen struggling with all of this, or a migrant degree struggling with even worse situation in Greece, um, if you are a journalist who is part of a, an ongoing or recent labor drive. If you're a Greek migrant in the U.S. and would like to weigh in. Certainly. Or if you are a sex worker and would like to weigh in on the amnesty uh, debate, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Thanks, as always, for listening. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>